0: The following episode is part of an ongoing series on the history of science and the Ottoman Empire, curated by Nir Shafir and available for download on iTunes, Hipcast, and SoundCloud. Check out the series tab on our website to learn more about this and other series available only through ottomanhistorypodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shavir, and today we have with us Tuna Artun. Tuna is an assistant professor of history at Rutgers at New Brunswick, and he will be speaking to us about alchemy in the Ottoman world. This is part of a series that we have on Ottoman history of science, and I think Ottoman alchemy really kind of goes into the heart of the uh, questions that we often face when we try to study history of science in the Ottoman Empire. We have this. Basically, a science's branch of knowledge called alchemy, that to us today seems uh, both irrational or pseudo scientific, uh, but in the you know for most of the period of the Ottoman Empire, actually was a major branch of knowledge, and followed up by all sorts of scholars. Today, we'll be discussing different traditions of alchemy, both the early Greek and the Islamic versions, and how Ottoman alchemy developed from that and then we'll be trin- talking about uh, different examples of Ottoman alchemy and how uh, this kind of compares to the recent uh European literature literature on European uh, alchemy as well thank you for coming on tuna thanks for having me Nir. uh now tuna let's just start off with the most basic question mm-hmm. what is alchemy what do we mean by that
0: that's a big question and I'll try to You know, summarize it as best as I can. Uh, Needless to say, alchemy meant different things to different groups of people, um, both in the Ottoman world and um, in the societies that preceded it. Um, In a more general sense, it means transmutation and transformation. So, uh, if you read, um, for example, Ottoman poetry, uh, you can encounter, you know, kimya nazar, right? Uh, the the Beloved's gaze uh, has certain transmutational uh, powers. Uh, again, in Sufi literature, certain shays also have uh, kimya nazar or powers of alchemy uh, by which or through which they change or they transmute the souls of their murids, their believers. Uh, what we mean by alchemy in uh, the more history of science sense is ilm al-kimya or in kimya the science of um, uh, alchemy, uh, the most basic definition of which is uh, transmuting base metals into precious ones. So, for example, transforming uh, copper or lead into silver or gold. But of course, in the Islamic literatures uh, on alchemy, um, transmutation or uh, transforming or transmuting metals, uh, base metals into precious ones is not the only goal of alchemy. Alchemy has, uh, or it was believed to have very real applications in the field of medicine, for example, just as the expert alchemist uh, can treat a metallic body to cure of its impurities and make it a perfect metal, such as gold. Uh, I- the same alchemists can also use uh, alchemical methods and inorganic materials to cure a person of various diseases, right? The elixir can achieve this, uh, or at least it was believed to be uh, to have those properties. Um, even though you don't see this much in the Ottoman alchemical tradition and the earlier Islamic medieval tradition, uh of alchemy there's also a uh, creating artificial life uh which is also transmutational. if you think about it okay wait wait, uh, hold on
1: okay let's just back up here how sure. many d- we've talked about like already three different types of right alchemy, right? right so right. we have the alchemy of precious metals mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is basically taking a cheaper metal and ch- trying to transform into gold
0: exactly and that that was the most well-known and um uh, both in 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 the historiography, uh, but also in, uh, you know, pre-modern societies that was the most widely known application of alchemical practices. But needless to say, there were other methods, and you were summing it up. Medicine, right, uh, is one, and techween creation of, or creating artificial life is, you know, another application of alchemical methods.
1: Uh, and then on top of that, you have like metaphorical. Oh, understanding. absolutely. So, okay, so this it's is like it's the a. It's shi- a
0: loaded term. And of course, I mean, I, I don't mean to compartmentalize these disparate meanings. That, I mean, they, they did comprise a holistic uh, a union, if you will, of various meanings, but all kind of stemming from that meaning of alchemy or kimia as an act of transmutation
1: so you can transform the soul you can transform metals you can i mean when you're saying you're creating uh, artificial beings like how is that transformation
0: it's it's not actually creating artificial life out of nothing because you put in something an inorganic material or sometimes you know hair for example and you can create another kind of life out of it and actually you know i mean we'll talk about this down the line in this interview But the elixir, the highest form of elixir, the elixir al-Azam, was believed to be a living creature. Hmm. It it had life. So, I mean, there is creation of life right there.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. But I'm assuming that alchemy was, you know, this quest for either the transmutation of metals or, you know, the quest for the elixir. This is obviously not just an Ottoman thing, that it's... Been present, uh, you know, throughout Islamic societies, or even further back.
0: Absolutely, I mean, textually speaking, uh, the oldest surviving evidence is from Hellenistic and actual late antique Egypt, and it's generally accepted that you know Egypt uh, or Hellenistic Egypt was the place where the earliest texts on alchemy. Um, Alchemy, as we know from the later traditions, existed. So, you know, people such as Zosimos uh, uh, were, uh, uh, you know, present in Egypt and writing there. Uh, Of course, the the kind of alchemy that was uh, practiced in Hellenistic or uh, Egypt uh, differed quite a bit from the later Islamic tradition. Uh, This earlier tradition is generally referred to as Alexandrian tradition, which was also inherited by Byzantium. well it was part of the Byzantine world of course, but after the loss of Egypt to um, the world of Islam, uh, uh, <laughs> Alexandrian uh, alchemy was continued to be practiced uh, in Constantinople, in Thessaloniki, in, you know, uh, in lands where the Byzantine Empire was able to hold off.
1: So then there's this other thing called Islamic alchemy?
0: Okay, okay. there are many Islamic alchemies, but the, 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 the one tradition that uh, has, I think, overwhelming importance is the Jabirian tradition, which takes its name from Jabir ibn Hayyan, about whom there's uh, an entire literature which I will not try to summarize, but even in Islamic times, early Islamic times, in for example, in Basid Baghdad, there were debates about whether or not Jabir ibn Hayyan as a a real human figure existed. So they were aware of uh, the difficulty of pinning down this entire corpus on a single person. And what Jabir did, uh, or what the Jabirian corpus rather did, in addition or on top of uh, Alexandrian alchemy, uh, was to introduce something called, among many other things, ilm uh, al-mizan, the science of the balance. But before I get there, I should probably talk about Alexandrian alchemy. Um,
1: yeah, just an, um, just for just basic, uh, yeah, basic very very
0: very basically. Presumably, even before these earliest texts existed, there were those who tried to you know do certain things with metals, right? I mean, metallurgy is a very ancient science and you know uh, technical expertise. But what Hellenistic Egypt did, or you know, philosophers thereof did, was to provide a philosophical and natural scientific background, a theory. They gave a theory to a practice, in a sense. And the theory was that all metals uh, share a common nature. Uh, the differences between them were actually accidental qualities that came into the metal after it. Began to be formed. Uh, one of the basic tenets of this is the sulfur mercury theory, and here already in Hellenistic Egypt we get into the kind of the metaphysical aspects of alchemy. Sulfur usually represents the masculine figure, the the male figure. Uh, it's 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 hot and, and dry, and uh, m- uh, mercury uh, represents the female figure, uh, and it's cold and moist. And the two coming in together they produce offspring, which is new metals, right? Uh, in the process, um, at least according to these uh, ancient texts, many of them actually from the late Antic era, uh, planetary influences give certain accidental qualities to the offspring of sulfur and mercury, which creates various forms of metals. But because they all share a common origin in sulfur and mercury, you can actually play, right? the expert alchemist can do certain things to the metal to cure of its impurities and thus create silver and you know ultimately gold and of course Aristotelian physics come into the play here because um, coldness uh, well actual hotness coldness um, and um, uh, dryness and moistness are the f- you know the four uh, uh, qualities that these metals share and um, by balancing these in a certain metal, uh you can you can perfect the metal. So that was the basic tense of Alexandrian alchemy in a very crude fashion. What Jabir did was, was to use something that already existed in the Hellenistic tradition, actually coming from Galenic medicine, Galenic medicine, which was that um not only were there Uh, four qualities of, you know, uh, hotness, coldness, uh, dryness, and moistness, but these had uh, four degrees of intensity, which complicated things, and then, you know, you could do more. What Jabir did was introduce seven more degrees, so four times seven is 28, which also corresponds to the letters of the Arabic alphabet. And here we get into some really tricky stuff, which is the Ilm al-Mizan, which I have doubts whether or not people who copied the text exactly knew what was going on. Uh, it's it's a it's it's a very complicated science, and it basically stipulates that there's a there's an ontological relationship between the word which stands for a metal and its qualities. Right. So fudda, right, silver. Uh, You look at the individual letters in the word, or zahab, right? Um, You look at the individual letters of the word, uh, find the numerical values of the Arabic letters that constitute the word, uh, and then to make it another metal, you obviously have to alter the numerical value of the word itself. But in the meanwhile, you actually process the metal with very real alchemical or chemical procedures that start changing the metal. So that's I- in a sense, was one of the novelties of Jabirian alchemy.
1: So you've given us a good kind of overview. There's this Alexandrian tradition, uh, and then building on top of that, you have this Jabirian, Jabirian tradition. tradition. Mm-hmm. But what is, let's say, you know, I want to make a bunch of gold. <laughs> uh, like, ha, you know, what would a 10th century person in Baghdad tell me how to do it you want to just start melting copper and then you know throw in pieces of sulfur or how does it what would they what would they say
0: well they would they would definitely tell you they would warn you that books alone will not teach you how to how to make gold Uh, they would advise you very strongly to find a master uh, a master alchemist uh, who would train you and who would reveal the hidden meaning of the text so, as you might already know, uh, alchemical texts are notoriously difficult to read and comprehend. Um, uh, most alchemists use decnamen code names for various procedures and metals, some of them very obvious, others are not necessarily so. So even within the textual tradition of alchemy, there's occultization of knowledge, and this was, you know, as they say, uh, done. To hide this science from the unworthy, because they thought it was actually uh, a, a science that could be used for evil uh, if it fell into unworthy hands. So the first task of an alchemist, if you're a knowledgeable one, uh, is to weed out the unworthy from the worthy.
1: But what, what would be the good uses of alchemy?
0: The good uses of alchemy would be, at least in the Islamic tradition, to use the science not to enrich yourself, but to perfect your soul. So here we get into the first discussion we had, the multiple meanings of alchemy. So the goal of a philosopher-alchemist was not to enrich himself, to make himself wealthy, but rather to perfect his soul. So there was, at least in the Islamic alchemical tradition, and of course it has some parallels in, for example, Taoist alchemy in China, the journey of a base metal to a precious metal, Parallels, not only parallels, but in a very real way, follows and is integral with the journey of a sinful, unworthy human soul into the perfect man. So, um, and I I think that's precisely why you have so many Sufis uh, engaged in the production and reproduction of alchemical knowledge, not only in the Ottoman society, but in the Islamic world in general. Uh, And actually, one who, and this is really interesting, I think, uh, alchemy is probably already know had a lot of detractors uh, in the Ottoman world in the you know in Islamic uh, uh, various Islamic societies in general uh, uh, who had very real concerns about or questions about the validity of the science. It wasn't a science such as astronomy slash astrology that pretty much uh, a, a good chunk of the society accepted as valid. There were a lot of people who questioned the validity or even the possibility of metallic transmutation. Right, starting with Ibn Sina, and uh, not starting with him, but one of the best examples I think is Ibn Sina. And um, what was their objection to alchemy? Well, one of the objections was all all of these metals were act uh, all of these metals were actually uh, uh, they they did not have differences just in accidental qualities but by their very nature they couldn't be turned into one another just as you cannot turn a dog into a cat or vice versa Uh, so they were accepted as different beings in the mineral kingdom right Um, but then
1: sorry just to clarify to the listeners so an accidental quality would be like an essence would be wood and the accidental quality would be like the form of a chair or the form of a table right
0: Y- yes, I know i mean that that would be another example what i w- what I mean would be for example, the level of moistness in a given metal, so we have to understand what they think of as accidental qualities in terms of their own you know scientific worldview right um so the fact that um um for example, silver has coldness and um uh, gold has hotness in it. Those would be accidental qualities that, according to co- alchemists, could be fixed. Uh, whereas people like Ibn Sina thought otherwise. And then there were other detract- detractors um, who argued that God created silver and gold uh, rare. I mean, they God made these metals rare for a particular reason, which was, you know, to give a social balance to the world and, you know, the individual alchemists who can I- if this was true, if we could, you know, if one could create silver and gold in abundance, that would really unravel the social fabric of the society. Mm-hmm. And we, we get into, you know, medieval Islamic economic theory and social theory, which is interesting in and of itself. But so one of the points that the detractors of alchemy made was that most alchemists that they could observe were very much impoverished. They spent all of their wealth on tools such as alembics, which you would also have to get. uh, What is an alembic? Alembic is a vessel. uh, It's it's hard to describe in words right now. I'm making a motion with my hand. It has a, a spherical bottom and then, uh, a, a again, a glass tube attached to it, and it's used for distillation. Uh, there were other kinds of containers for different, um, different alchemical procedures, such as tech-lease calcination. Um, and uh, you would also need a lot of base metals, which also gets expensive, and you would n- require uh, sources for heat, etc. As you can imagine, this was not a cheap, a poor man's um, you know, endeavor. And once you started on this path, there was also an idea at least i mean you encountered in this literature that people were addicted to alchemy right People were addicted to this uh, uh, uh kind of a, uh, unreachable goal of transforming you know base metals into pressure and so on. S- so they spent all of their fortune on on this particular science and then the alchemists uh again in the medieval period, retorted back by saying that um, it was a good thing that many alchemists were impoverished and that was actually one of the unintended uh, uh, impacts or effects of alchemy because only then could you attain spiritual perfection uh only uh and here we can get into the literature on wealth and whether or not wealthy men can achieve spiritual perfection but the uh at least the the, the more mystically inclined alchemists argued that by becoming poor uh the individual alchemist could then perfect his soul so
1: we have kind of an overview of uh, the different traditions the pro and the anti alchemical uh sides of the debate uh, if we move into the early modern period, you know what changes? What do we see when you speak about? Is there something called Ottoman alchemy? That's
0: a great question, uh, and one that I try to answer in some fashion in my dissertation. But I have to, of course, do a lot more thinking about it. The um, the Ottoman alchemical tradition, of course, derives, as you know, you might suspect almost entirely from the earlier Islamic alchemical tradition. So what happens, starting in, of course, when I say Ottoman, uh, especially in the context of the 15th century, I'm, I'm talking about the Rum, right, the um, um, Anatolia, lower Balkans, and eventually Constantinople, I'm keeping separate the Arab lands for a particular reason, which was that the alchemical tradition in places like Egypt and Syria was more or less continuous whereas in what became the Ottoman world, or the early Ottoman world, was, of course, uh, what had been the Byzantine world. And there we have, actually, sort of a paradigm shift from uh, uh, Alexandrian alchemy, or not, not, not exactly a paradigm shift, but rather a, a changing of traditions, uh, especially in urban areas that became predominantly Muslim over the centuries, uh you know, uh, instead of reading uh, uh, Stephanos of Alexandria or Zosimos in Greek, uh, uh, more and more people started to read Jabr ibn Hayyan or Zosimos, again, in Arabic or, you know, uh, sometimes in Persian. Uh, so that was the beginning of the textual tradition, you know, individual texts that were brought in by various learned people who came to the Ottoman lands to seek patronage from the imperial family or from other, you know, uh, uh, you know powerful men in the empire Or, of course, you also had a lot of scholars who went to places like Egypt and Syria and and the Maghreb or India and Iran uh, and brought back texts with them the two of us talked about this particular text before but um there's a very interesting manuscript in for example princeton university library uh, which was presented to ottoman sultan Bayezid ii in 1497 and that was a persian text uh, which was written by um, azizullah ibn atawlah al-hindi an indian scholar who mm, you know wrote in persian and gave the work and that that's pretty much one of the oldest texts uh, alchemical texts with uh, a particular Ottoman context to it. Uh, of course, need to say there were earlier texts which were lost in time, but I would argue that the earliest Ottoman alchemical tradition is almost all uh, uh, um, you know in Arabic and Persian, and were brought into uh, a- Anatolia and the Balkans and Istanbul, and they were reproduced
1: you know now that we have all these uh, people interested in alchemy mm-hmm. presenting treatises to the Ottoman court uh you know switching from Greek to Arabic texts mm-hmm. uh you know how does that does that change the theory like what what mm-hmm. changes in this Ottoman alchemical tradition
0: for uh, much of the 16th century actually theoretically speaking uh or speaking of the theory of alchemy um Ottoman alchemists or those who wrote on alchemy follow the Jabirian tradition. Only, I think, with uh, Ali Celebi, Izniki, in the late, uh, or the third quarter of the 16th century, do we start seeing some changes to, you know, tradition, Jabirian alchemy. So, um, one of the changes that, by the way, Ali Celebi, Izniki, is um, a a difficult individual to pin down. Um, The the textual tradition is... uh, Relatively speaking, substantial. The text started appearing in the second half of the 16th century, and a lot of the copies date from the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, Ali Çelebi, or Ali Bey ibn Hüsrev, as uh, uh, Khatib Çelebi wrote about him uh, in the keshef Zunun, was almost certainly a Rumi figure. Um, Some sources call him Saruhani from the province of Saruhan. Others call him Izniki. Um, He wrote predominantly in Arabic, uh, both in prose and verse. The number of individual works he produced, number around 60. Um, Although it's almost certain that other texts entered the corpus after his death. And uh, what changed with Ali Celebi and his later Ottoman followers were uh, not major in the sense of the technical aspects of what was being done. Uh, to the metals, but um, how Ali Celebi positioned alchemy vis-à-vis other sciences and um, what he called the world of alchemy, which he did not coin, but let me talk about that very briefly. So in the Jabirian tradition, um, there are um, three alams, the the, the three worlds, uh, which are all interconnected, and this, of course, goes back to the Greek tradition, the macrocosmos and the microcosmos. Uh, macrocosmos, as you might suspect, is the world of the heavens, and the microcosmos is this world. In the Jabirian tradition, um, the world of alchemy, alam um, al-iksir or alam al-kimya, is um, between the macrocosmos and the microcosmos, and it's through alchemy that the world of man is connected to the macrocosmos, the, the, you know, the, the realm of the stars, the realm of the heavens, rather. Uh, Ali Celebi switches this order and makes alchemy the microcosmos which is a, I think a very interesting uh, interjection of Ali Celebi into the tradition and thereby he um, he places the world of men or the human being or human agency as a sort of a conduit between the stars and the world of um, materials we, da- we we don't actually see, right? So they're, they're inorganic materials and um, they don't talk about it in this way but it's at a microscopic level the the you know the the actual internal qualities and the world of men or the mankind uh, is um, a conduit or an agent that connects the two worlds and i think um, what it does with um, astrological And astronomical information is also very interesting. He, um, above all other alchemists, spends the most time on conjunctions, uh, and more specifically on how conjunctions... What are
1: conjunctions? Yeah, okay. so conjunctions meaning like when planets, uh, planets align.
0: Yeah, the, the the alignment of various planets, for example, um, uh, the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter, which can be the major conjunction, and hence the Sahib Quran that we know from you know political literature, or political astrology. Um, um, so the alignment of stars and how they influence various uh, alchemical procedures. Uh, is given a lot of thought in the uh, Ali Çelebi corpus. Um, on top of that, he also, uh, and, and I think in line with this, he also changes uh, or he introduces uh, a, a, a new schema of the actual origin of metals, whereas in the Jaberian, uh, uh tradition you have only sulfur and merc- mercury, and in Razi and Paracelsus, who's a, uh, a Swiss um, alchemist of the 15th century, uh, they introduced salt. Um, Ali Celebi actually postulates that there are seven things that go into the creation of a, m- of a metal. And needless to say, these seven things parallel uh, the seven stars, right? The, the five observable planets plus sun and the moon. And just in a similar fashion, he divides the world of alchemy, the uh, alam al-kimya, into nine spheres which parallel the nine spheres of uh, the heavens. So uh, technically, uh, in terms of the technical contents of what he's trying to do, I think he's a devout follower of Jildaki, who's a Memluk alchemist of the 14th century and thereby of Jabir ibn Hayyan but he does i think innovate uh in theoretical matters and i think that's one of the reasons why he was known as al-mu'allif al-jadid uh by the you know later uh tradition which is you know, the new or the modern author um
1: why do you think he was so interested why did he introduce these astrological these greater astrological elements to the, the alchemical tradition
0: that's a very interesting question, and I, I'm afraid it's it's a difficult to answer. Of course, astrology and astronomy was always relevant to alchemists. Uh, uh, whether or not why Ali Chelebi thought these mattered more than previous alchemists uh, is difficult to answer without knowing more about Ali Chelebi himself. And we know surprisingly little about him. Um, his own you know, uh his own works aside, there isn't much about him until we get to um um and Nevizad Attai, uh well Keshwazun of Khatub Celebi and Nevizad but I don't think the person they have in mind is the actual Ali Celebi. Uh so what little we know from his own words uh, is that he was definitely born and grew up in Western Asia Minor. He doesn't say where, uh, although uh, one of his teachers, actually his one teacher in alchemy is called Ahmed in Sarohani. So he was from the Sarohan region. Um, we don't know whether or not this is the famous Ahmed in Sarohani, who is a halveti sheikh. Um... And then he doesn't give much information about his master either, except for the fact that his master's master, Ali Marjushi, came from Egypt, and that he was actually uh, executed in Egypt uh, by the Ottoman governor of Egypt under Suleiman the Magnificent.
1: It seems like alchemy is a rather um, how should we say this elite elite, but also kind of a world that's not easily accessible. Uh, both to the people of the time and to researchers today. Um, so, when we can we find actual examples, you know, in the chronicles and so forth of of people talking about alchemy, of people, you know, uh, actually conducting alchemy.
0: Mm-hmm. Apart from the alchemical treatises themselves, which have very interesting marginalia about you know various procedures or. F- for example, from an 18th century manuscript, I found uh, one Ottoman alchemist based in Istanbul who writes that he tried to, uh, uh, you know, um, execute a certain alchemical procedure as it was described by Paracelsus, but he was not, this, you know, successful in this. And, of course, by the 18th century, Paracelsian texts were available, you know, in a limited fashion in Arabic and Turkish. Uh, so we have some textual evidence of people actually trying these things out Uh, so it's not necessarily a solely textual tradition that's for sure i think and that's actually one of the debates about early modern islamic alchemy in general uh and then the next it it could be it could be just some people argue
1: that it's just you know people reading it and reproducing older works that's that's correct and just trying to kind of metaphysically better themselves absolutely absolutely and i'm
0: sure some of that was going on but that was not the whole picture and then the next next line of big evidence actually comes from, uh, like, Menakab Names. Uh, what are Menakab uh, men- men- n- uh, You know, hegeographies, uh, uh, And, um, of course, there's, you know, uh, a lot of debate on how to use hegeographies, uh, uh, f- uh, especially for the purposes of writing history or understanding historical societies. But taking some of the stories about various shays and tech and especially about disciples, which is, I think, interesting, who pestered these shays uh, for alchemical information, uh, we can imagine that at least on the part of certain disciples, joining uh, uh, the circle of a certain shay was also a way into attaining certain kinds of information or knowledge or, you know, have some expertise in a particular science which was not otherwise available, right, such as alchemy. And, you know, we can think of other sciences like this. And even though reading the, um, you know, the Ottoman or otherwise alchemical literature suggests that this was um, uh, an elite uh, uh, branch of knowledge, uh, we have evidence of alchemy as it was practiced by other means so um and i'm i'm reluctant to call this you know low alchemy but uh definitely some of the alchemists talked about swindlers or tricksters or people who tried to defraud others uh, by promising them to teach alchemy and um so uh, one of the criticisms of course was that these people did not know the science of the balance as it exists in the Jabiran tradition and thereby they couldn't actually transmute base metals and depression precious ones. Uh, a Muhammed Efter from the third quarter of the 16th century actually talks about a certain Remmal, so someone who was knowledgeable in the science of rem, uh, Remmal Mehmed.
1: Which is geomancy?
0: Geomancy. Um, who went around in the region of Kastamonu and Bolu uh, promising to teach people the science of alchemy uh and uh, he collected a lot of money from um the locals there and disappeared he did this multiple times till he was imprisoned uh i believe in Kastamonu. and um there is another decree from the same muhammad after which suggests that he escaped uh, imprisonment but certainly th- and very interestingly he was a Ma- he was described as a maghrebi uh and uh, it's interesting that Maghreb... Uh, that is, you know, uh, North Africa and once uh, Spain, uh, had a reputation for being an excellent source for alchemy.
1: Okay, so you've given us a sense of kind of what was going on in the Ottoman world in terms of alchemy, you know, a few of the figures. Uh, in our previous conversations, you know, we also talked about Murad the Fourth. And his interest in alchemy mm-hmm. and his sponsorship of alchemists in mm-hmm. attempt to, you know, actually create mm-hmm. uh, large sums of gold. Um, you know, which brings up, I think, to some degree inevitable comparisons with uh the European tradition mm-hmm. of alchemy, mm-hmm. you know, where you also have kings in Bavaria and Saxony and all these mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. places, mm-hmm. you know, uh, also patronizing alchemists, trying to increase their uh, wealth and so forth. When we compare, you know, what what was the alchemical tradition in Europe or, for that matter, in uh, China, which also, which also had a strong alchemical tradition? You know, what was going on there? You know, are there connections, are there comparisons that we can make?
0: Um in terms of connections, uh, the best-known case, of course, you know, parasols and Materials, about which we spoke a little bit earlier, could you go into m- sure
1: more detail about who Paracelsus is? Of course,
0: Paracelsus was uh, a, a Renaissance Swiss sage, philosopher, alchemist, uh, a, a physician, and prophet, as he I think fashioned himself. And he certainly had a lot of followers, not only in the you know 16th century, but also in the 17th century Europe. Um, One of the innovations of Paracelsus in the field of medicine was the introduction of certain alchemical precepts and the notion that uh, you could cure diseases with uh, inorganic materials, right, such as mercury, which also existed in the Islamic tradition, but I think Paracelsus gave uh, a new emphasis uh, to the use of um, things like mercury, which was, of course, very dangerous. So you had to be, or the particular uh, physician had to be extra careful not to poison people while trying to cure them. Um, Paracelsus was not translated into uh, Arabic until the middle of the 17th century by Ibn Sallum, who was the Syrian chief physician of the Ottoman sultan Mehmed IV. Uh, After Ibn Sallum's translations, not only of Paracelsus but later Paracelsian texts, various other Ottoman scholars uh, uh, translated more. Uh, Some of these Arabic translations were translated to Turkish. So that was the introduction of Ottoman physicians, uh, to Paracelsian medicine. But I think it's very important that um, Paracelsian tradition, as has been noted by various historians, was not adopted wholesale. Galenic medicine uh, was never really dethroned. Um, it was merely that certain um, certain approaches to uh, pharmacology on the part of Paracelsian physicians was adopted by Ottoman physicians. But at the same time, Paracelsian texts precipitated a renewed interest in alchemy on the part of Ottoman physicians, who I should mention here, um, or I should emphasize, were not interested in translations of European alchemical texts from the 17th century, but who went back to their own tradition, the Ottoman tradition on alchemy, the Islamic tradition on alchemy. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's, it's very important to note that the earliest manuscript which contains uh um the m- probably the most important works from the Ali Çelebi corpus all put together uh in a big volume uh came from late 17th century Istanbul and it was copied by a physician um and um uh, if we read Emir Şifai uh, who was a chief physician at Bursa Um, he cites Ali Celebi's works uh, uh, quite frequently, so they were obviously reading uh, not only the Ali Celebi corpus, but other Ottoman and earlier alchemical texts in hopes of uh, uh, making better use of uh, Paracelsian medicine. Okay. but speaking of european uh, alchemy in the same period of course there's a huge literature now um on and i'm not trying to summarize it i'm not uh, i will not try to um summarize this but um um you know individuals such as isaac newton right um he wrote more on alchemy than he did on physics so um
1: yeah i think this you know this question of this example of Isaac Newton, who we kind of put forward as the image of modern rational scientific thought uh, and his obsession with alchemy uh, is a, you know, is a very interesting example. For instance, when I uh, teach history of science classes to my undergraduates, I always give them pieces of Newton's alchemical journals and try to see if they can figure out what, it and what in the world it is and who wrote it. And they're always astounded by the fact that, you know, Newton was just had hundreds of these alchemical journals, which I think brings this larger question of, you know, how do we understand something like alchemy uh, in terms of history of science? Because, you know, in the popular image of alchemy, it's seen as a pseudoscience, as something irrational, as something mystical or metaphysical. You know, you get these images of Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. Or, you know, people just uh, sitting in basements trying to make gold, but not understanding the true physical world uh, that underlies, uh, you know, metals and uh, our material world. Like, so how how have people, you know, why one, why study alchemy as a historian of science? How have people gone about it, especially, I mean, the European case is the most well-developed? Um, I guess let's start with those two questions, then we can move on.
0: I'll answer the first one later <laughs> and address the the second one first. Um of course in the uh w- in the historiography of western alchemy in the past 30 years there has been a lot written it's it's generally referred to as in the literature at least the new historiography of alchemy. Uh as you pointed out this this wasn't just uh, uh, you know the general sense or the general populist sense of alchemy but also many historians of, uh, historians of science such as george sarton and others uh, uh, you know th- they did not think very highly of alchemy or alchemists and did not think it was something fit to study but what happened in the past 30 35 years was people like you know, Bill Newman, um, uh, Lawrence Principe and others uh, have posited that alchemy, or as they call early modern European alchemy, chemistry. uh It's chemistry with a Y, right? Yes, exactly. Chemistry with a Y, uh, which, you know, exists as a word in this period's literature, alchemical literature, was one of the driving forces of the scientific revolution. So rather than imagining or uh, conceptualizing alchemy as a pseudoscience that was you know pushed aside by the scientific revolution Uh, they put alchemy at the very beginning of it Uh, and the reason why they do this or you know one of the the rationales behind this uh, historiography is that uh, at least early modern European alchemists that they study? Uh, they uh, they were meticulous in note taking. Uh, they had heightened emphasis on uh, on experimentation, and these two things were actually one of the two driving forces of the European scientific revolution or revolutions. Um, of course this new historiography is not without its de- detractors uh, people like Brian Vickers uh, uh think that uh an overemphasis of alchemy vis-a-vis scientific revolution uh you know brushes aside alchemy's very real um uh, metaphysical and spiritual components and uh i i think that's um that can be considered a fair criticism um with respect to a particular Historians or you know their works, but I think it 's also a mistake which uh, you know some historians of Islamic science to uh, to imagine medieval Arab alchemists as the perfect scientists you know toiling in their laboratories um, as you know beacons of positivism that that wasn 't the whole story uh, or even an accurate story of alchemy as it was practiced in the medieval or early modern Islamic world. Of course, I mean, approaching alchemy from the point of view of those, and there were many of them in, for example, early modern Ottoman society, uh, approaching alchemy from their point of view, alchemy was not just a branch of knowledge. It was the culmination of all other branches of knowledge, right? So an alchemist had to know medicine. They had to know um uh, uh, you know science of talismans and science of letters ilm al-huruf uh but also astronomy and astrology and al- and and mathematics and arithmetics uh so th- the perfect alchemist was also the perfect man of knowledge the perfect scientist and i think that alone uh, makes alchemy interesting to study from the point of view of those who engage in it so i think it's important I think it's important not to give value judgments to certain branches of knowledge from our, you know, contemporary point of view. I mean, we already s- spoke about, you know, detractors of alchemy, but there were also many believers in its precepts, and you know, many many people over the centuries, you know, trying to um, engage with alchemical texts, understand them, and you know, make it happen. So I think it's important to understand. Where those people fit in their respective societies, and you know, I I I think that that's something very important for you know social and cultural history of early modern Ottoman world. Because frankly, you see references to alchemy not just in alchemical texts. We spoke about this before, uh, but you see references to alchemy in poetry and hagiographies and histories, uh, and it was you know part and parcel of you know, Ottoman intellectual tradition, in a way. Um, And I think, you know, thousands and thousands of volumes on alchemy in libraries across the world, you know, attest to that. And I I think it's important to account for why exactly these people were interested in this branch of knowledge and how they went about doing
1: so. I think this is an interesting response to this uh, problem we have when we try to study Ottoman history of science, um... The problem being, if you study alchemy in the European world, you always know that something called chemistry comes afterwards, and that you can always, you know, tie in this irrational branch of knowledge to a rational one, and you can always kind of draw a line between these early experiments and something better, that more true, more accurate, that comes up uh, later down the line in the 18th and 19th centuries when true chemistry emerges. And for us um, scholars that study the Ottoman world or the early modern Islamic world, you know, you have all this interest in um, all these treatises on alchemy, but you don't necessarily, you know, you don't have that telos at the end that's saying, okay, out of this came chemistry. So how do, you know, again, how do we value alchemy?
0: I mean that that's actually a great way of putting it. A lot of the European uh, literature, especially the older literature on alchemy, is teleological, right? They know that chemistry will be born out of the pseudoscience after the scientific revolution, uh, and actually there were quite a f- you know quite a number of historians of science who used to call alchemy proto chemistry. Some still do, uh, and you know, that's teleological to begin with. Whereas in the Ottoman uh, case, you're right. The not only that, you know, chemistry comes only with a paradigm shift, which is the introduction of Western, uh, uh, um, you know, ways of uh, producing knowledge, Western model uh, or institutions of learning based on Western models. Uh, but you also, I mean, going back to this so-called new historiography of alchemy, you also don't have... Scientific revolution in the Ottoman world. Uh, so then, uh, unfortunately, some of the questions asked by historians in, in you know in the previous decades was uh, you know questions of failure. You know, why did the Ottoman society, or the famous Needham question, right? Uh, why did not China have a scientific revolution? Why did not the Islamic world have a scientific revolution? And alchemy can become a part of this story of failure. But if we do that, I think we neglect to see the importance of alchemy uh, for studying the social and cultural history of the Ottoman society. Um, so I think rather than asking negative questions uh, vis-a-vis history of science, uh, historians should focus on how that particular branch of knowledge was practiced and where exactly it fits in. The act of producing knowledge in a particular society, whether it's the Ottoman one or some other, you know, non-Western society,
1: can we? I mean, speaking of Joseph Needham, and you know, these in his kind of grand endeavor to chart out and explain chart out uh, Chinese scientific literature and explain why it never developed into a scientific revolution if we look at kind of chinese scholarship or china historian scholarship on alchemy can we find useful lessons uh for writing on in history
0: at least the literature that i'm familiar with vis-a-vis chinese alchemy a lot of it uh, uh focuses on political history and how chinese alchemists uh, uh try to um use alchemical precepts or Daoist alchemy to reinforce the body of the emperor, right? So um, it has direct political connotations, uh, which is not the case with Ottoman alchemy, with the exception of Murat IV, whose interests in alchemy uh, uh, were not necessarily... I mean, they had more to do with the economic plight of the Ottoman world at the time than with any concern with his own body. There isn't much interest on the part of the Ottoman court in alchemy, Uh, and I think that is part of the story of why alchemy has not been studied uh, to this date. You know, uh, by most Ottoman historians, uh, is that it doesn't have a clear connection to the Ottoman court. I mean, we have some texts which were presented uh, thanks to Atufi's catalog. We know the uh, imperial, you know, the Topkapi Library had you know, a few dozen books on alchemy, uh, but neither in the Chronicles or, in you know, for example, in Fermans, et cetera, or, you know, the uh, Bashpakalnik archives, you're not going to see alchemy uh, either as an institution at the palace. There was no court alchemist, but, you know, there was a court astrologer. Uh, so... That and how state-centric Ottoman historiography has been until you know a few decades ago. Um, I, I think that also explains why alchemy, among several other sciences, have been neglected by Ottomanists.
1: Okay, if we can't find it, let's say if the state, if the Ottoman dynasty itself is not necessarily interested in alchemy, you know, where do we find alchemical texts? How can we write this history? Where where do we go for sources to look at this, and how many of these sources are still extant? You know, are there hundreds of treatises out there, or are there just you know a few? The,
0: there are hundreds of I- individual treatises uh, on alchemy. I mean, Suleimani alone is chock full of alchemical treatises. I'm imagining a lot a lot of them originally came from private collections. Um, a lot of them have very particular sufi connections so for example one of the major books written by ali chelebi Sur uh, sirr uh, Sir al-rabbani uh, was translated w- it's it's a work in arabic and it was translated into turkish by a certain sheikh ahmed al-qadiri uh, so uh, and you know we know halveti various halveti copyists uh, translators uh, so certainly the sufi connection is there um a couple of technical libraries had alchemical treatises Uh, whether or not they use these texts to better themselves spiritually or whether or not they actually engaged with this uh uh, technical aspects of alchemy is another matter um but certainly there are many many texts and i'm i'm Pretty sure there are so many that have not been uncovered yet that exist in mémoires, etc. And of course, you know, speaking of alchemy, uh, you not only have these dedicated texts or dedicated manuscripts talking, but you have thousands of recipes, right, found in you know various kinds of mémoires and, and other kinds of unrelated material.
1: Well. Thank you for this fascinating look <laughs> into the world of alchemy Tuna. You should say this without <laughs> laughing. <or something>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Tuna for this fascinating look into the world of alchemy. It seems like there's going to be a bright future ahead uh you know both for history of science as a whole and I think uh specifically looking at uh alchemy uh, in the Ottoman world. Again, I invite our listeners to check out our other episodes in the history of science. Uh, series on the ottoman world if you want more information tuna will be providing us a short bibliography on our website which will guide you to the relevant sources thank you again tuna thank
0: you for having me there.